Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. the Rock Chalk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz, and as usual, I'm joined tonight by Steve Fetch, uh, but we also have, have another guest with us tonight. Uh, it's, it's Kyle Davis, the brand new writer for the site. Uh, he's been, been doing our uh, Big 12 race catch-up every, every Monday. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to get him involved in a, in a few more things coming up here, but uh, we, we were finally able to go ahead and get him on the podcast today, so how, how are you guys doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty good too. So, all right. So it's a it's been an absolutely crazy week in college basketball, um, and actually it's continuing even tonight as we're recording. I uh, just went final St. John's, who beat Duke. Um, you know, after being 0 and 11 in the Big East on Saturday, they just upset Villanova at Villanova as well. So it's been an absolutely crazy week um, that started out with what's probably the, the biggest topic for us. Here, the Kansas versus Oklahoma State game in Lawrence, uh, where Kansas was honestly was just completely destroyed by Oklahoma State. I think from start to finish, the the, the final score didn't really show it. Um, Oklahoma State winning 84 to 79, but you know Kansas never really had a good handle on that game at all. So I'll, I'll go ahead and, and uh, start start with you, Kyle, since since you are the new guy here. Um, I mean, what exactly happened in that game? Like, are are you still shocked about that game? Yeah, so uh, I was actually at that game, so I had a not a front row seat, but a fairly good seat to that. Um, I don't even know what we want to call this one, but it, you know, just watching it from there, it was I, I the biggest takeaway that I had was that Oklahoma State just looked more athletic. They looked quicker, and there's not a lot of teams that you can say that coming into Allen Fieldhouse. It wasn't even that you know they shot really well and they hit some really tough shots i i remember like back-to-back fadeaway jumpers baseline jumpers which is one of the harder shots in college basketball uh that they just kept knocking down they had you know 15 percent three-point shooter uh solomon knocking down a three but it just that first half especially i was on the end where oklahoma state was playing offense and they just they just looked like they were so much quicker. They were more attentive. They were more athletic. It was very apparent early on that I think I mean we we learned from Bill Self and after that from the uh, from the media availability that it was a complete lack of effort on Kansas's part at least in the first half. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was just shocked with how I mean. You know, I, I, I'm used to seeing that Oklahoma State kind of performance when we go down to play them in, in Stillwater. Um, you know, KU always seems to have problems down there playing against Oklahoma State. You know, the, the, the last time, and, and of course they, 
they kind of foreshadowed this on the broadcast, and they were talking about the last time the Oklahoma State beat Kansas was when Marcus Smart, uh, you know, in in Allen Fieldhouse was when Marcus Smart came up and did the backflip. Um, so you know, but that that was the kind of performance that I that I was seeing there. Um, but hey, Fetch, any um, any other kind of reaction from you other than just what the hell was that? Yeah, I actually was at the Marcus Smart uh, backflip game, so kind of a small world there. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, people got to stop going to those games, I guess. Um, so I think, um, you know, good point from Kyle about the fact that they definitely made some tough shots there. And I think Kansas did a better job in the second half of, uh, you know, making them work for their shots. I think the game was mostly lost right away when Oklahoma State just kind of showed that they could get almost every offensive rebound they wanted to. Um for the season, they're they're definitely not a great offensive rebounding team, but they definitely have some size, so you kind of expected it to be a little bit of a challenge for Kansas, but they rebounded almost half their misses, which is way too many to give up, and you're not, like I said a, a couple times on Twitter, uh, you're just not going to beat anybody who's even half decent letting them get that many rebounds. So once, once that started happening, I think it was kind of uh, a little worrisome. Um, a couple other things that I dug up, uh, you know, they shot 44% from three. They're at 33% for the season. Right. And, uh, and they took almost half their shots from three in that game, and they're ninth in, in Big 12 play overall. So they definitely played the uh, we need to take a ton of threes and, and hope we make a ton of them uh, game plan to perfection. Um, and then the last thing is that uh, they had zero road wins coming into that one and only uh, two wins uh, away from home period on the season. So they have one road win all season, and it's at Allen Fieldhouse. So not, not exactly a, a banner day um, in KU basketball history, but um, I think, and obviously we'll talk about this a little bit more later when we get into uh, into Tuesday's game, but I think a lot of it, more so than anything, was just the the defensive rebounding and, and how bad it was because the rest of the game um, I don't think was, was as bad as the scoreline indicated, especially the second half there. They really um, forced him into some tough shots. And uh, Kyle, it sounds like you would know a little bit better with, with this effort thing, and, and we kind of speculated about it a little bit today on the website, but is the flu going around uh, a little bit? Cause, I mean, we saw with Spee last night, he doesn't have a lot of energy and, and the whole team in general didn't have a lot of energy on Saturday, and, and I'm sure they're getting worn down, but with the flu going around, I don't know, maybe that's something that's that's happening as well. Yeah, very well could be. I mean, you know, Devontae has an excuse uh, if he is missing some some long jumpers or some free throws at the end of the game, because after 40 minutes of, you know, basically leading the offense and doing what he can on defense, there's not much you can expect from him. But, yeah, I don't – and it's, it's just the weirdest thing um, – yeah, I know we'll talk about this too later when we get to TCU, but I texted uh, a friend last night and I just said I never thought I would say this, but I'm kind of looking forward for Kansas to go on the road again because there's something about this team at home. And, like, being on that game uh, uh, on Saturday, the crowd was great. It was loud early. Uh, and it just seems like this Kansas team, for whatever reason, does not feed off the crowd like past ones have. It almost seems like they they put that pressure on them that everyone is so amped up that it, it makes them tighter. And I don't, that's a, just a really weird phenomenon that I know that we are not used to because Oklahoma State was not phased at all from the start. And I think you know, maybe there is some sort of sickness or something that's making, you know, definitely Spee was not himself uh, on Tuesday. And I don't think, you know, it, he hasn't really been himself like we've come to know him since the Kansas State game. So that could be a factor. But there's also something with all year, if you look back to, Texas Tech game or even Arizona State, Arizona State shot lights out. But still, there's just something about there's this team just at home has not responded and used the crowd and the energy and the aura of Allen Fieldhouse like it seems like past teams have. I don't know if you guys have noticed the same or kind of feel the same way, but I, I can't put my finger on what it is. It just seems like there is – it's not because it's not loud in there. It's definitely loud in there. The crowd's still great. It's just they can't feed on it for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a couple different things. Like, one, I don't think this team is as good as we usually have. Um, so, you know, most opponents that come in know that Allen Fieldhouse is going to be hyped. And in a lot of ways, you know, being an opponent coming into such a historic place, 
um, you can kind of feed off that energy a little bit yourself. But in the past, what we've seen is, you know, usually the Bill Self teams are good enough at stomping on people's throats to demoralize them early enough in the game that they can't continue to feed off of it. And that's how, you know, Kansas builds big leads. And that's how they, they kind of feed off of that, that home energy is because, you know, you, you can kind of get a little bit of a charge going into an, an atmosphere like that. But then when the team also comes out and is just completely destroying you, it's demoralizing. It's hard to keep that going for any length of time. Kansas hasn't really been able to do that. And so not only does the, is the energy level itself not there from the crowd because Kansas hasn't, you know, built huge leads to start or isn't playing very well to begin games. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing some pretty good teams coming in. I mean, it's, it's not like – in the past where, you know, most of the Big 12 teams were were, were decent um, and Kansas was clearly better. I mean, this is a very good, very deep conference. Even the worst teams in the conference are still very good teams, um, you know, at, at least for, for the most part. They all have some, some decent wins. They all have, you know, decent talent and have the ability to go on the road and play a good game. We've seen that night in and night out in the Big 12 at any number of places. So, um, you know, I think that's part of it. Uh, but – you know, just just the fact that this team isn't as good as we've seen in the past makes it really hard for them as well to continue to feed off the energy like we're used to seeing. It's not that the energy's not there. It's not that you know Allen Field as itself has any issues with the crowd or anything like that. It's just that, that just that this team is, you know, they're dealing with depth issues. They're dealing with injury issues. Um, you know, kind of to the injury point. You know, Bill Self said after the Oklahoma State game that Devontae Graham hadn't practiced all week because his knee was was bothering him. You know, so um, and and that's kind of I think a discussion we'll have in the you know coming up a little bit here, but I believe it's been seven games now in a row that Devontae Graham has played all 40 minutes, uh, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's a combination of fatigue and you know the team not being quite as good as they usually are, and the fact that the the the, the opponents are just really good. Yeah, and I will say uh, you know to put it in perspective, this is not. A- typical Kansas team that we're used to, but I also, I mean, Kansas fans, we, we, the sky is also not falling. I just look over to what is happening in Kentucky right now and what is happening to Kentucky and the season they're having and the struggles and the talk about if they're going to be a seven or eight seed and that they can't, you know, be average SEC teams at home or on the road, even though Tennessee I know is better than average. But, you know, this is definitely not – I mean, this Kansas team is still third in the conference in scoring, as I look at it right now. Uh, they're actually fourth in defensive rebounds, which I know no one would guess. But so this team definitely has its flaws, and there is a smaller margin of error uh, than usual. But, you know, to look at some sort of optimism uh, after Saturday's game, it's that – you know, the Big 12 is as good, if not better, than ever. And also this team, despite its flaws, is still still tied for, for first place, depending on what happens with Texas Tech tonight. And then, you know, they're still on shot for a, a two-seed, maybe a three-seed, uh, if we're looking big-picture NCAA tournament. So, um, obviously, that doesn't help uh, when you're watching a performance like we're watching, uh, we watched on Saturday. But there is some perspective there, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so so let's go ahead and move on to individual performances from the game. You know, I was l- looking over trying to see if there was anybody that actually played pretty well despite, you know, what what ended up happening. And the guy that jumped out to me was was Udoka. Um, you know, it, with with the exception of rebounding because he didn't get a lot of rebounds, um, you know, he he was absolutely a monster in this game. He scored 20 points. Um, let me pull it back up right now. So he, he scored 20 points in 21 minutes. Uh, he was four of seven from the free throw lines. You know, you know, he seems to have ironed out quite a bit of those issues. He had a couple steals. Um, you know, he was, he was eight of 11 from the field. And, you know, he, he ended up with four fouls. He probably could have had an even better game if he didn't get yanked again after picking up two fouls pretty early in the first half. So, um, but I mean, other than other than Yudoka, was there really anyone that, that stood out to you guys in terms of really good performances despite the loss? Um, I thought uh, Malik Newman was all right. You know, kind of led the way from from the defensive rebounding standpoint. Um, also did a, a good job from three. And I thought uh, Spee was pretty good too, despite the the two for nine mark from three. Um, a lot of that obviously is kind of 
small sample size theater where one night you're going to just miss a ton of them and then the next night you're going to go five or six for nine or whatever. So I don't really look at, at just the three-point shooting mark when it comes to um, how good of a game someone had. It's a little bit more important to uh, see kind of what type of shots he's taking. And I thought he did a pretty good job of, of getting good shots and uh, did a, a decent enough job defensively. We'll probably talk a little bit more about his off-ball defense when we get to the TCU game because I watched him a little bit more closely in that one than I did uh, in the Oklahoma State game. But overall, I thought he was pretty good as well. Yeah, I mean, especially 17 points when you know, two for nine from three. I mean, two years ago, if he goes two for nine from three, he's probably got six points, maybe eight points. And so to see him scoring in other ways has at least been – optimistic that he's able to, I mean, we all know that his driving has got a lot better and finishing around the rim. So when you're, when you're shooting 22% from three for the game and you come away with 17 points, that's got to be fairly promising. Yeah. Not only that, I mean, he had four assists. He had a couple blocks. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like he just got some points and that was it. He, he definitely contributed around as well. I mean, he had four defensive rebounds. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he, he was definitely contributing. Um, but so let's, let's kind of go on the other end there. You know, the the three people that were really disappointing to me were Vic Garrett and Lightfoot. I'm not even counting Silvio DeSouza at this point. Um, you know, only played a minute. So, of those three, Vic Garrett and Lightfoot, which which do you guys think was the biggest disappointment from that game on Saturday? Well, that's a good question. Um... And if you want, I can go and read off the lines. Vic Vic had five points, was uh, one of five, both from two point and from three point, uh, had three defensive rebounds, but three turnovers. Uh, Lightfoot played 18 minutes, only had two points, was, you know, made his only shot attempt, had only had one rebound, and, and basically that was it. And then Marcus Garrett played 14 minutes, again, had two points, went one of two from two, had a couple or had three rebounds, and basically that, that was it from him as well. I guess I would have to say Vic just from the standpoint of what he did earlier this season and just from the standpoint of even taking out those those numbers from this season, he's obviously the most talented of the three. Obviously, I mean, I like Marcus Garrett a lot and, and uh, Mitch Lightfoot has come on a lot, but just in terms of physical tools and talent, I think Vic has the most athleticism and, and the most talent. So probably him um, and the three turnovers especially were – huge because when he wasn't turning the ball over, he was mostly being disinterested and just kind of hanging out on the perimeter. So you can live with three turnovers when you're Devontae Graham and you're getting into the lane a lot and uh, making a lot of kind of high-risk passes that'll go for a dunk if they're completed type stuff. Or or even if you're Sfi and he does his, you know, drives into the lane and will turn it over sometimes. You you can live with those. You can live with the aggressive turnovers. But when you're either – just hanging out on the perimeter or turning the ball over. That's something you can't really live with. So I'm going to go with Vic for that reason. That and I think Vic had quite a few defensive lapses. I mean, I didn't really notice anything good about his defense in the game. You know, so like if if he had that kind of stat line, but he was contributing on defense and, you know, good rotations and things like that, then I, I could maybe forgive it. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm completely reversing my opinion from one of the previous podcasts where I was basically saying, oh, well, it's natural with Newman stepping up that Vic was going to take a step back. This is well above or, you know, well past that point of just taking a step back when someone else steps up. So, yeah, there's definitely something going on with Vic. Um, you know, his, his defense isn't really there anymore. Uh, he's, he was late on rotations, left a lot of open threes for Oklahoma State. Uh, and, yeah, he's just not contributing anything offensively and taking up a huge number of minutes. So, Kyle, any any other thoughts on any of the other guys, or, or, or do you agree with us about Vic? I definitely agree with you about Vic. Uh, I was actually looking, kind of diving deep into his uh, game log for, for a potential story idea that uh, didn't happen this week and then all the news about him being benching. But, you know, everyone talks about the, the scoring and obviously the defense is a factor we'll talk about. But the real part where I, I just am kind of baffled with his, uh, his kind of return to earth has been in the assist game. And that's where he, you know, he really being one of the most athletic guys and being in a four guard lineup. When you look at look back into the non conference, three of his best games, and obviously he scored like scoring games. Uh, I'm looking at like Texas Southern, Syracuse, and Washington. He had seven assists per, and it just seems like you know, in the last 
So it looks like uh, if I can do the math quickly, I mean, he's got four assists in the last four games. He got six assists in the last six games. Uh, the last time he had four assists in a game is Iowa State. And obviously, I know that's not his main uh, area, but that just really just seems how kind of disengaged he is from the offense in, in total. And then with Marcus, it's I guess we're starting to expect more because he can show those flashes of aggressiveness where he drives the basket a couple times really well or uh, like the CCU game, knocked down a couple big threes. But I give him a little more of a pass just because he is a freshman who has been told the you know, defense and rebounding and, and, you know, just making sure he doesn't screw up is kind of his main focal point where someone like Vic is, is a lot more expected of him. Yeah, definitely. All right, so, so let's go ahead and move forward to the to the uh, TCU game. Um, you actually just mentioned it, talking about Vic being benched. I think that was kind of the big story going into the game that Bill Self announced prior to the game that he was benching Vic um, and was starting Lightfoot in his place. Um, I mean, I, I think we can all agree that it, it definitely seemed like it was justified. Um, I guess the, the, the real question is, did it seem to be effective? I mean, Vic still ended up playing 29 minutes, Lightfoot – basically for being a starter got maybe an extra minute or two, but that was about it. Um, you know, did, do you think it was effective at all in, in motivating Vic or, you know, really getting us any particular change um, and kind of to, to kind of play off of that as well. You know, I think we saw for the first time um, more than just a few seconds of a, of a too big lineup. Um, do you think that that was effective at all? Fetch, let's, let's, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah, I actually think that it, it kind of was, actually. Um, a lot of the mistakes he made in that game were kind of uh, over-exuberant. He got beat on a back door once. Um, there were a couple of bad shots that he that he took. There was one turnover he made a, a bad pass on. But those are all kind of aggressive plays that he made and didn't really shy away from taking shots when he needed to and made a couple of really nice back cuts for baskets late in the game and, and did a really good job to get fouled on another one. So the overall numbers weren't great. Uh, three for nine from the field to oh for three from three. But I would say that uh, the, the game that he had was probably a little bit better than the numbers show, even just from the standpoint of, kind of nice to have him uh, as an option on offense again and, and not be a guy that you can kind of ignore. I think that's going to help the offense a lot going forward. And if he can be even um, halfway engaged on defense, I think that's going to help going forward too. He was really bad off the ball a lot, well, last year for sure, and then kind of has been this year even before his slump. Um, but yeah, on one hand, it's kind of a, a deal where, um, he's not super mentally engaged uh, on defense, and this is this is definitely not just a him problem. That's kind of a whole team problem, and you get guys leaving shooters wide open and stuff. Um, but then you got the thing where he's he's jumping out and, and kind of overhelping, which also leaves shooters wide open. So if he can find a, a little bit of a happy medium there, maybe he can be a pretty good defender as well. But I just think it was nice to see him uh, attack the basket and, and you know make some back cuts and, and try to do some things to get on the score sheet. Yeah, it's kind of telling that, I mean, in going into that game, in five of the six last games, he never even made it to the free throw line, which I think says a lot about his kind of uh, aggressiveness on the court and then to be able to get to the line, you know, granted it was only four times, but to knock down four free throws, that's just one of those little things that stands out that seems to be maybe somewhat of a uh, the beginning of a shift in kind of uh, how he's going about the game. You mentioned like the back cuts. He just seemed to be much more uh, aware of his, his spot on the court and to kind of make more of an effort about go out there and, and make a play around the basket and, you know, not just settle for a, a crossover step back jumper. If, if, if I remember right though, I think a couple of those were like at the very end when TCU was fouling to try to come back. Um, but yeah, he, he was definitely a lot more aggressive in that game. Um, you know, there was a, I, I believe it was Jaren's Howard who was being interviewed before the game and kind of said on, on the pregame show that, you know, the attitudes Vic had, after being benched was exactly everything you would expect from a guy that was trying to earn back playing time. And he was probably going to go ahead and play starter minutes, just given the way that he, you know, he handled the benching and all of that coming out. So, you know, we've, we've talked a lot of, a lot in the past about how Bill Self seems to know what buttons to push. And there, there was an article that was put up. I'm trying to remember who it was by, um, you know, that was talking about Bill Self seems to be the master of knowing how, 
um, you know, how to talk about his guys in the media, knowing how to deal with them in practice, um, to, to get the best out of them, to get the best reaction, and, and to get them to, to go ahead and perform the way he wants them to. So I'm not, I'm not really that, that surprised on that. Um, yeah, so it, it definitely seemed to me to be effective. To kind of talk about the, the two-big lineup, you know, I'm not really sure how long it actually lasted. I didn't get to watch the very beginning of the game, and it seemed like they were out of it before I even – was really able to start paying attention. So um, did, did either of you guys really notice anything with that? Did he really stick for it for any amount of time? Or, or like, did, did I just completely miss it? Or was it kind of just well, like a Yeah, Azubuki got those two quick ones. So that kind of uh, got rid of that in a hurry. And then for whatever reason, they never will. Not for whatever reason. Obviously, he didn't want, to, want it to happen again. And apparently does not want to play Silvio anymore, which it's kind of hard to blame him, I guess. But... Um, yeah, because because of those quick ones and, and Azubuki being on the bench, you didn't really get to see a lot of it. Uh, when it was in, I, I thought it was fine actually. Um, it's like you know, it, it, it's going to be pretty uh, opponent dependent. I thought this was a pretty good uh, opponent to try it out on. Um, you know, Mitch Lightfoot did a, a really good job. I think when he got um, kind of isolated on the guy on the perimeter. He's actually not a not a bad little on ball defender to be honest with you. When he can get out on the perimeter, it's kind of when he's in the post and guys can post him up. He's not a very good post defender, and and he kind of struggled off the ball, probably because he was in a role that he's not used to being in. But I was pretty encouraged, and and I think as he got more comfortable in the flow of the game offensively, he was you know a little bit better. Obviously, he's not going to want to make too many waves making his first start and stuff. So he didn't really expect him to do a ton, but. Going forward, you know, he's a guy who can shoot that jumper and, and can put the ball on the floor a little bit. So I think it just adds another dimension and it's something that they can go to for maybe, you know, five or, or ten minutes or so a game. Um, but I don't really expect to see it too much going forward. Yeah, I, I will say I kind of still see him as that Kevin Young type player where, you know, he's really he really brings high energy. He's really good kind of playing out from the post. Uh, if, if he can be the four guy instead of the five guy, it allows him to really kind of shine in, in what he naturally does. He's, he's, he's quicker than your average big man, I think. Um, you know, and, and he's really good about coming from, like, the blind side and just blocking the shot out of nowhere when he's not playing defense on that guy. So when he's coming over to help in the post, that's when he plays his best post defense. So, um, you know, getting, getting him in there with Azubuke, I think, is a really good opportunity for him to kind of do what he can naturally do. Um, I just, I just, again, I wish that Bill Self would play, you know, Doak with two fouls in the first half, um, especially since he only finished with three in this game. I mean, so he got one in the second half, and there was a big stretch of time, yeah, where we just didn't have him in in the first half, and we probably could have been a little bit more effective if we had both of them in for, for any kind of length of time. So. Yeah, well, he, he finished with three fouls, you know, right. so it's like taking him out didn't really, didn't really do anything, um, and especially when you're going to take him out while they didn't, um, on Tuesday, obviously, but when you're going to take him out for uh, the Pokadoke, then it doubly makes sense to just leave him in in the first half. And um, it just seems like that's when teams always kind of make their runs against us is when they take Azubuki out. But um, as for just getting back to Mitch real quick, I actually think, you know, I think he's probably going to be uh, an even better player than Kevin Young, to be honest with you. They're about equal in terms of the offensive rebounding numbers, but Mitch is a lot better uh, shot blocker. Um, and, you know, Kevin Young was not a, a shooter by any means. He was just kind of a, a put-back guy and, and could catch that ball on the screen and roll and dunk it and stuff. So um, I actually think Mitch is uh, – I guess my, my original nickname uh, for him was 110% of Kevin Young, and then I changed it to future Mountain West player of the year. Um, but now I guess it's going to have to be back to maybe like 120% of Kevin Young or whatever, because he sure come on and, and shown a lot of skills that uh, I didn't really know he had, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and I think it's fair at this point to say that he, you know, he in his sophomore year now is comparable to, I think, Kevin Young as a senior. So he definitely has more room to grow and more time to grow to become a better player. But as he stands right now, I kind of see him in that same role that Kevin Young has as a senior on this team. So. All right, Kyle. We 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 kind of forgot about you for a little bit. Any any thoughts on that on that two big lineup? Yeah, that's you know I I remember it did not seem I I was kind of expecting more of a setback offensively just in kind of the flow uh, to start the game just because I know that they you know Bill talks about they have not practiced this much and so there's uh, naturally going to be a little bit of rust but I think I think it, it's. I think to your guys' point, how often it gets played is probably going to come down to the foul situation of Udoka and Bill's willingness to 
uh, keep him in there. But yeah, Mitch, you know, especially in the right the right matchup, uh, you know, when TC's got someone like uh, Brozdansky who likes to kind of move around the the court all over the place and not have to just traditional uh, post up like a four man. Uh, I can I can definitely see how you know probably given another two weeks maybe a month of practicing and seeing it in the game more regularly where uh, this is going to be if we keep getting what we've been getting from Lajarell Vick as a starter then this seems like it's probably going to be the most uh, viable option moving forward. Yeah. All right. So go. So moving forward, um, just kind of one more question about this game. You know, looking at the lines for Svi and then for Newman. Um, you know, they both were kind of non-existent in this game. Svi, you know, I, I could buy the argument that maybe he was feeling uh, a, a little under the weather, um, even though he played 36 minutes. You know, he only used 6% of the possessions he was in for. He had one point, only had two shots, made one free throw of the two that he took. And, and in, in general, didn't do much on the stat line. Uh, that, that I could potentially buy that maybe he just wasn't feeling well, but, you know, still had to go out there to be able to play defense. Newman, on the other hand, you know, ended up, playing 33 minutes, ended up taking nine shots total and then had a couple free throws. Um, so I think you can legitimately say that Newman just had a bad game. Are you more encouraged by the fact that we were still able to win the game with both of those guys not playing very well? Or are you concerned that we can have nights like this where we have two guys, you know, that aren't playing very well and it seems to happen pretty frequently? Yeah, can the answer be yes to both? Because I think that's probably, I mean – it's it's definitely concerning when you are especially a guard oriented and outside shooting oriented team and you're you know one of the best three point shooters in the conference uh only takes one three and he misses it and then uh you know Newman I think of more of a you know I think KU can get by easier with him having an off night than uh, maybe see, I mean, definitely when both of them are out, it's, it's an issue, but um, it was optimistic to see how Devontae bounced back in a big way and really took over and hit some big shots. Uh, I mean, there was a period of time there in the second half where it seems like it was either Devontae taking it over himself or him assisting to Yudoka, and that was the offense for maybe a four or five minute stretch, and it, and it worked really well. So there is confidence that. You know, Devontae is, is a guy who's, you know, got a little bit of Frank in him. He's going to try and find a way to to get the big basket when you need him to. But, yeah, it's definitely concerning if uh, – I think it's more concerning just that Steve wasn't even getting his shots up. That's one thing if you have a bad game and you go two for nine from three. But uh, I feel like he wasn't even – you know, he said that they were just guarding him really tight all game. If that's the case, then – Maybe that's a way that teams can can focus on in the future as a way to to uh, you know get Kansas down a little bit, and that's definitely more concerning if that's the case. Yeah, and he and he definitely looks a little slow. Like like I said, I I could buy an argument if maybe he was you know feeling a little under the weather. Um, or just, you know, had had a bad game because of that. I, I could potentially buy that argument. But but I know, Fetch, you, you had talked a little earlier about him being slow to close out on his rotation defense. Um, you know, what were your what, what were your thoughts on that? I, I know you wanted to go ahead and bring that back up, but then also kind of, you know, are, are you more concerned about them having the bad night or encouraged that we were able to win despite it? I think, well, first of all, I think the, you know, him being slow to get out on guys is kind of, who knows, that could be health-related. That could be just because that's who he is. Uh, that seems to be his, his kind of main problem uh, defensively. But, yeah, offensively, I would I would tend more towards the, you know, uh, encourage that they won without really anyone other than Graham doing it well, as Buki too, obviously, but – Offensively, it was pretty much the Graham show uh, in terms of threes. Uh, oh, and then and then Garrett, don't don't forget Garrett yeah. was oh, yeah. sharp sharpshooter, sharpshooter right. Marcus Garrett putting two in two, two yeah. from two and then two for two from three. So right. he, he was shot shot 100 percent last night. So <laughs> I'm I'm encouraged because uh, though every time Kansas has a game where obviously where they lose but where they just kind of don't look great, I get the same five tweets from a hundred people. That's Oh, they're so over reliant on the three, and oh, they need to shoot, you know, fifty percent from three. And what are they going to do when the threes aren't falling and all this stuff? And first of all, the point is stupid because what? I mean, what are they going to do? Not rely on their best skill? I mean, that you know, that seems insane. That'd be like asking North Carolina's team last year to not 
attack the offensive glass or expect West Virginia to not force turnovers or something. It's just dumb to, to bring it up in general. But so last night they shoot 33% from three and missed quite a few that you would think that they would kind of normally knock down, uh, especially at home with those nice soft rims of Allen Fieldhouse uh, and still won the game and, and did it really uh, mostly by defense, to be honest with you. But uh, so for that reason, I'm pretty encouraged. I don't really think that we're going to see uh, too many games where both Fee and Newman or, or Fee and Graham or Newman and Graham or, or kind of pick your two are going to be that bad uh, from three and just that bad overall. I mean, obviously there have been games where multiple people have not played well, but uh, rarely does it happen where it's kind of two guys that you almost really need to count on. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of saying that Svee probably wasn't feeling great. And, and who knows, maybe Newman wasn't feeling great. And maybe no one is feeling great. I, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. So, <laughs> right. Uh, but going forward, I'm I'm definitely more encouraged uh, than discouraged. Of course, you know, last week Kansas won a game against Kansas State by defense and then went out and laid a gigantic egg against Oklahoma State. So who knows? I mean, I, I haven't predicted this team correctly in like three months, so I'm probably not going to start now. But I'm going to I'm going to still say that I'm a little bit more encouraged than discouraged. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys, any, any final thoughts on either of KU's games that they played before we move on to the rest of the conference? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, one more thought about Spee. If he wasn't feeling well, he at least uh, got all the energy he he could muster for that windmill dunk, and I think the fans appreciated that. So uh, he he also, I think we might need to track this. He might be the best cheer shooter on shots that don't count uh, as anyone in the country because I think he had a he had a three on Tuesday. Uh, he obviously had the dunk that didn't count. He had a three on Tuesday where it was after a. A foul, he shot it and made it. And then I know the Oklahoma State game, there was a uh, offensive uh, moving screen call on Udoka where he then chucked up about a 28-footer and it went in. So props to Svee for being the greatest uh, uh, non-counting three-point shooter in Kansas history. So, uh, in other words, we just need to get a bunch of people with whistles in the stands. You know, they may get kicked out, but that way Svee will shoot better when everyone thinks it doesn't count, right? There you go. Okay. Yeah, just have everyone else on the court stop, and he'll just chuck one up. Exactly. All right. So, oh, oh, one, go, go one, one more that I wanted to bring up. Uh, I I teased it a little bit, and I wanted to bring it up again. Uh, three possessions in a row. Marcus Garrett uh, at the end of the game last night uh, left Desmond Bain, who is one of the best three-point shooters in the country, uh, wide open and just ran into the lane to help out. I think Brad Bianchi had the ball two of the times at least, and, and maybe all three of the times I'm going to plan on going back and watching it and putting some video together if I can find some time to do it. But uh, three times he went in to kind of overhelp there when, you know, I don't know if it's a coaching thing. I don't know if it's guys are going for steals or, or what. If they're going for steals, they're not doing a very good job of getting them. But um, I think it's a coaching thing. But it's like just let them take that little 14-footer rather than pass out for an open in-rhythm three, the, one of the best – uh, shooters in the conference. I think if they can kind of, that's kind of the next step. If they can uh, avoid doing that, um, I think the defense is going to take uh, another big step forward. So kind of, I mean, fingers crossed, I guess. I don't really expect it to happen, but uh, just something to watch for going forward is how many times these guys leave shooters friggin' wide open. Yeah, they did that against Oklahoma State, too. That's why Oklahoma State, I thought, shot as well as they did. And looking forward, you know, I'm not so sure that Baylor can capitalize on that, but Iowa State um, can can definitely do that. So next Tuesday, you know, if, if they keep doing that at Iowa State, there's a good chance Iowa State could get hot and bury us if if we keep doing that. So, all right. So so looking at the rest of the conference, you know, obviously um, big big happenings for this week. Um, Texas Tech was able to go ahead and and win on Saturday to keep to to get back into a tie with Kansas. Oklahoma lost though, which kind of helped us out with with Texas beating them. So that way we're only tied with one. Um, West West Virginia completely demolished uh, K-State, I believe it was. Um, and so then on Monday, West Virginia wins in Norman to beat Oklahoma uh, to kind of at least stay close in the race. Uh, Texas, Texas and then Kansas State are actually playing as we are speaking right now. K-State is up 66 to 64 with 18 seconds left um, in Austin. So, Looks like Kansas State is probably going to win what what I think is definitely an elimination game. 
Um, you know, whoever wins that has a has a small chance to potentially climb back into the race. Um, but uh, other than that, I mean, can do you guys think we can eliminate anybody at this point from the from the top four? Like, I think Kansas State, if, assuming that they win this, is barely hanging on by a thread. Um, but is there anyone out of that group of West Virginia, Oklahoma, or Texas Tech that you just can't see potentially challenging Kansas for the for the league title this year? Uh, I think Oklahoma's done. Uh, I think I think we can count them out. To be honest with you, um, just because there there's too many teams, you know, they're two games back of of KU and, and Texas Tech. Uh, there's too many teams uh, in between them. They still have to go to Texas Tech and to Kansas. I mean, obviously, at Kansas, I guess is not what it used to be. But, <laughs> right. Uh, still still have to go to both of those spots. Um, so I, I think that they're, I think that they're done. Um, West Virginia, you know, I think that they, uh, currently you've got to say are probably playing better than anyone, even though they've had a, a little bit of a, a struggle recently, uh, losing four of their last, uh, five big 12 games before their, their weeks this last week. But, um, yeah, actually it, really was, well. it was five to six actually. Uh, oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but they're playing well. They also probably have the easiest, uh, remaining schedule, um, getting, uh, really everyone except for Kansas, uh, at home in terms of teams that are, you know, decent, I guess they play at Texas and Texas has been pretty good. But if you, if you watch that first game uh, in Morgantown, it's, it's kind of hard to, even with a home court advantage, it's kind of tough to see anything other than a, a West Virginia win. So, um, West Virginia, I think, is still um, in the hunt. And then, obviously, you know, Texas Tech and Kansas both have uh, similarly challenging schedules uh, remaining. Um, so they're while they're in first and, and while they're still certainly, I would say, probably, you know, the two favorites, um, I wouldn't count out West Virginia yet just because of their, their easy schedule coming up. What about you, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma, I think I have to agree with Seth here. They're one and four on the road in Big 12 play. And so if you ask yourself, do you think they can win both at Texas Tech and Kansas, I would probably say no. I think they would maybe split those. Uh, and if that's the case, then, you know, that's six losses already in the conference uh, if they don't drop another home game. And so then, you know, you're for them, you're banking on either Texas Tech or Kansas or actually both to go four and three in their last seven games, and that's a tough ask. Uh, so I think you can probably uh, – Oklahoma, unless they just somehow find a way to be great on the road, I think uh, I think they are probably done. And then, yeah, West Virginia is such a wild card. I have no idea. I watched most of that Oklahoma game, and, you know, I think it was a Lamont West who hit like four threes in a row in the first half, and then I watched the first five minutes of the second half where – both teams combined for one for 19. It was just, it just, you know, made me want to go uh, turn off the TV and just, you know, claw out my eyes because it was so bad to watch. So I, I can't figure these guys out. They still though scare me quite a bit uh, in terms of contenders just being one back. And then Tech is just that tough, gritty team that just fights and fights and doesn't go away, even though you, you know, think you're rid of them. And so uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, final stretch here in the conference because. Those two, for sure, have, I think, established themselves as pretty strong competitors. Yeah, yeah. I think West, West Virginia is an inconsistent team, but mainly because the, the refing has been so inconsistent. So they'll have a long stretch of the game where they're pretty much getting away with mugging people, you know, just because of the, the pedigree, I guess, of their, you know, the, the reputation of their defense. Um, and then the refs all of a sudden for like a five-minute stretch decide to start calling everything. And so all of a sudden the, the other team gets, gets on a big run. And then when they start loosening up again, well, now West Virginia is hesitant to, to, you know, put on the full press the way they usually do. And so that's, that's typically when they end up falling apart. And so it's just a matter of are they able to reestablish that. So I, I think that's one, one of the, da- the downfalls of a style like West Virginia is that you're completely at the mercy of the refs of whether they're going to call that, that contact that you have. Um, if if they don't, you look like a phenomenal defensive team. If they do, then you're in real real trouble. So, um, yeah, I, I think really the, the the team that really sticks out to me at this point um, would have been Texas if they had won, as you know them having a chance to kind of make a run out of nowhere. Um, but it looks like there's three seconds left, and K State's going to the line. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume that they won, and, and, and if they don't, you guys can all laugh at me later. Um, but yeah, I mean. <laughs> 
you know, because Texas has the number four, still have the number four ranked defense on, on Ken Palm. The only team in the Big 12 that's better is Texas Tech at number three. So, you know, I think I think at this point, Texas Tech is definitely contending with, with Kansas. They have a really good defense, a mediocre offense, but I think it's good enough for them to be able to kind of overcome, um, you know, especially since they have that, that wonderful defense. West Virginia, I think it's kind of streaky. I'd be tempted. Like, I, I think whoever won that game was going to, Again, between West Virginia and Oklahoma, was going to have a decent shot at contending for the title. But yeah, I do have have to agree. Oklahoma's defense is just nowhere near good enough for them to be able to compete going forward. So yeah, I would say it's down to a three-team race. Um, you know, Ken Palm, just looking at their projections, has KU and Texas Tech projected to have six losses in the conference. West Virginia projected to have seven, and then Oklahoma with eight. So um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a fairly safe bet at this point, unless we see a ton of craziness, which. It's completely possible given, you know, we've seen so much already in this week, not only here in the Big 12, but just around the nation at all. So, um, and then just one, one other update for those of you guys listening, um, well, and, and, and for you two, you know, we're talking uh, Iowa State is trailing to Texas Tech in Lubbock by only seven at the half. So, um, you know, that game is definitely not out of reach. Maybe Iowa State can go ahead and pull off a shocker there for us. Uh, to kind of give us a little bit of a cushion. So, all right. Any other any other final thoughts um, before we look ahead to the next couple of games? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I guess this will this will tie into the next couple of games, so we can just jump into it. But I right. think the uh, the con- the conference race basically uh, is going to come down to that three game stretch Kansas has, where they play West Virginia and Oklahoma at home, and then Texas Tech on the road. And you don't expect them to win all three, obviously, um, but if they can pull off all three of them, um, almost regardless of what they do uh, in their other games. Uh, that's probably going to be uh, number 14 for them. Uh, if you drop one of them, uh, obviously that kind of opens the door to, to Texas Tech and West Virginia, depending on to who and, and how many of those they drop. But those those are kind of the, the big keys uh, coming up. So obviously you don't want to drop any others, but, but that's going to be the main one because uh, – other than that, um, you know, you're right. Texas has been playing a lot better, and, and they do some things that I think bother Kansas in terms of just like having Mo Bamba on their roster. And uh, certainly at Oklahoma State, uh, regardless of how bad Oklahoma State has been, uh, is not a guaranteed win after what happened this last week. But I really think that it comes down to those uh, those three games. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. Kyle, any, any other final thoughts on the tickets? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting with Texas Tech, too. I think we're going to find out a lot in the next week because uh, on Saturday, if, you know, depending on what happens against Iowa State, they have to go to Manhattan on Saturday, which is no easy game. Then they host Oklahoma. Uh, and then you mentioned right after the Kansas game, uh, they have to go do a Saturday-Monday quick turnaround to go to Morgantown in West Virginia. So Texas Tech, uh, while they are looking great right now and tied in the standings, that is a tough end of the season stretch to come back. So Kansas can somehow go two and three with that West Virginia, Oklahoma, Texas Tech uh, kind of stretch there. Then you have to think they're in great shot, uh, especially if, you know, Texas Tech drops one of those games against Kansas State or Oklahoma leading up to that stretch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and they certainly didn't play very well uh, against Oklahoma in that first one. And, and Trey Young was not very good in that game either. So it's not like – um, it's not like he just came out and, and murdered them, uh, and that's why they lost. He wasn't very good. So uh, even with Trey Young being a little worn out, uh, you got to figure he's going to not have a game like that twice in a row. And, and so, you know, who knows? Maybe they maybe they drop that one. And the thing with Texas Tech is just, you know, they're seventh in the Big 12 in offense right now. I don't really see how they can keep it up, but they, they do keep winning. So I'm, I guess I'm just going to let it happen. But um, it just kind of surprises me each time they win these games just because their offense is so bad. But yeah, I but guess every team, every team in the league has something that they're – yeah, every team in the league, I guess, has something that they're they're not very good at. I mean, I've put this stat out there a few times, but Kansas and West Virginia are the only two teams in the league right now that uh, both their offense and their defense are even in the top half of the Big 12 right now. So uh, <laughs> that's, it's uh, it's definitely a, a parity-filled year, and, and there definitely is not one team that's like a, a standout team. So it's definitely very much still a, a three-team race, I think. Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that not only that, but Kansas and West Virginia are the only two teams in the Big 12 that have both their offense and defense ranked in the top 25 on Ken Palm. 
So, you know, they're, they're definitely balanced teams. Um, Texas Tech has been very fortunate that their defense has been able to carry them. Um, you know, Texas is even more fortunate that their defense has been able to get them to until just a few seconds ago, um, you know, 500 in, in the Big 12 conference because their offense is by far, I think, the worst in the, in, the, in the conference, which is a little surprising to me given that they have uh, Bamba on the inside. But all right, so specifically about the two games coming up before our next podcast, um, we have at Baylor and then at Iowa State. Um, any, any, any big concerns about this one other than what jumps out to me is, you know, Wigington for Iowa State um, in Ames, although I think I'd be a little bit more concerned if that game was at Allen Fieldhouse, to be honest, um, just given the way that they are playing this this year. I mean, I guess is that the biggest thing for you guys, too, that we, we're looking at back-to-back road games and the, everyone feels probably fairly good about it just because – of the way that this team has played on the road? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Baylor's kind of been like a home away from home kind of, to be honest with you. Right. Other than that that one year that we lost at the end because we had already wrapped up at least a share of the conference. Yeah, we've been, we played really, really well in Baylor or down in, in Waco. And yeah, it's just, you know, how bizarre this entire year has been just the fact that, um, you know, Kansas, you, you almost feel better about Kansas playing on the road than you do them playing at home. So, which is really, really weird to say. Yeah. The, uh, Baylor has been, been kind of rough, although they did just beat Oklahoma state. Um, Iowa state, if you, if you remember, was that first game that, uh, Malik Newman just went insane. in. so while he's been playing better, maybe you don't count on that happening again, but at the same time, uh, you know, maybe Ladrell Vic, has a little bit better game. Devontae Graham was just two of seven from three, so maybe he's a little bit better. Uh, the other thing to watch, too, with Iowa State is Nick Babb. Uh, he's out tonight with some knee stuff. I think he missed their last uh, – I guess I can just check real quick. Uh, missed their last two games. Who knows how that's going to be um, for KU's trip to Ames. But he's a really good player and, and kind of a, a big part of what they do. So if he's out, I think Kansas has probably a little bit easier of a time. Uh, as for Baylor, you know, just just got done with a four-game losing streak. Now they're on a two-game winning streak, but it's against Iowa State and Oklahoma State. So that probably doesn't say anything. Uh, the one thing, uh, obviously, with Baylor that's a little bit scary is that they're the, the second-best offensive rebounding team uh, in the conference, which uh, the fact that they're the ninth-best offense in the conference and, and really can't, you know, throw the ball in the ocean uh, it has lessened a little bit just by the fact that they could grab so many offensive rebounds. So uh, it's one of those things where uh, if Kansas keeps them off the glass, they'll probably win. But uh, as we've seen so often this year, it's a little bit easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys, any other final thoughts before we turn it over to Fetch for the Olympic Minute? No, I think uh, covered everything. All right, awesome. So yeah, Kyle, uh, thanks, thanks for joining us for this uh, great, great uh, first first offering here. Uh, but let's go ahead and fetch. I know last week we did the five uh, most likely medalists to watch out for that were non-American, and this week is the American, right? That's that's correct. Uh, so it's it's not really uh, well. I guess all these people are probably pretty fairly likely to medal, but. Uh, more so just kind of kind of people to watch. And um, I compiled this list uh, a little bit early, so a lot of these people have had actually kind of stuff written about them in the last week and stuff. So uh, great minds think alike, I guess. But um, I will go super quick. Um, since actually the Olympics have already started, there were some mixed doubles curling on tonight, which was pretty exciting. No, really? Um, I, thought, I thought it didn't start till tomorrow with figure skating. Yeah, well, or, or I, I didn't either. Time? Yeah, I, I didn't either, but I, I hopped on Twitter tonight, and uh, it was a buzz with mixed doubles curling stuff. So I watched the U.S. beat uh, a team from Russia by quite a bit. So looking maybe looking for a, a curling medal. Um, but so anyway, um, we'll just go down my list here. Uh, Chloe Kim, she's a uh, snowboarder from California. Um she is uh, 17 years old right now, I believe, or 19, one of those two. She's really young. Um, one, uh, she does the half pipe. Uh, she won a gold medal at the X Games at 14 and has won uh, X, X Games half pipe gold uh, this year as well as 2015 and 2016. So uh, she's the favorite and uh, probably the favorite 
four years from now in Beijing as well, and just uh, supposedly is, um, you know, kind of uh, like every generation there's someone who's kind of, uh, you know, the next whatever, and, and she's she's this. So um, next is uh, Michaela Schifrin, who had kind of her coming out party. She's a downhill skier. She had her coming out party uh, at the last Olympics in Russia. Uh, she is a native of Vail, Colorado. Uh, she won a gold medal in the slalom, which is the one with – all of the sticks that stick up and you have to like go around them. Um, and she's also the gold medalist at the world championships in Solom in 2013, 2015 and 2017. Uh, recently she's added the giant Solom, which is like kind of the same type of deal, but there's more of a distance between the sticks um, as well as the downhill, which is the one, which is um, you wear the, the super long skis and it's more about speed than turning. Uh, not as good as either of them, probably not going to medal in either of them, but is a, a pretty hefty gold medal favorite uh, in the slalom. She wins her races by, like, over a second, which is an insane amount for those races. Um, third is Lowell Bailey, who we talked about a little bit. He's a he's a biathlon guy. Uh, he is from North Carolina. Um, and like I mentioned when uh, we covered biathlon in our event previews, the U.S. has never had a biathlon medalist at the Olympics um, and had never had a medalist at the World Championships uh, until last year when he won the 20-kilometer race, uh, first U.S. world champion, also the oldest world champion, um, just because of the way biathlon went, uh, goes. Probably not going to medal, but he's, he's our best hope in, in quite a while. Um, next is uh, Mame Baini, who is a uh, 18-year-old uh, short track speed skater, uh, originally from Ghana, now lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, she is the uh, defending world junior gold medalist at the 500-meter distance, won the 500-meter distance at the Olympic trials. And actually, if, if you go watch uh, her Olympic trial race on YouTube, um, I don't, obviously I'm not like an expert, but uh, it just looks like she gets shot out of a cannon when, when she uh, is in this race. And these are, I mean, these are all like Olympic quality skaters she's going against. So she's not really like talked about as a, a medal favorite or anything, but if she can maybe get out in front, she can just kind of use her speed. She's also really new. Uh, to the sport, so probably someone to watch more in terms of a medal um, four years from now, but definitely someone who's who's a lot of fun to watch uh, skate. And then last but not least, um, I kind of cheated. I picked two, um, but they're twins, so it works. Uh, Jocelyn and, and Monique Lamaru, who are uh, players on the United States women's ice hockey team, and obviously I had to do it for a little local flavor because they are natives of uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, um, also went to the University of North Dakota where I went to. And uh, they are two of the best, probably, you know, four or five uh, players on the women's hockey team. Um, won uh, 2015-2016 and 2017 World Championships. Um, but the U.S. women's team has finished uh, second uh, in hockey to Canada at the last two Olympics and actually last uh, Olympics in 2014. They were up one with a couple of minutes left uh, in the third period. Uh, had an empty net goal that uh, they shot from basically full ice, and it just died right before the red line. And then Canada came down and scored with like a minute left, and then scored in overtime. So uh, naturally, they want to uh, they want to avenge that. Um, but with no NHLers at the Olympics for the men's, uh, that U.S. Canada women's game is is probably going to be the best uh, hockey game we see all uh, all tournament uh, on either side. And of all of the, you know, gold medal games or, or whatever, the biggest lock is that it's going to be uh, U.S.-Canada in the uh, Women's Championship. So it's a little unfortunate that you don't have to watch them all play until then, but you don't really have to watch them play until then. So that is your final uh, Olympics preview. Uh, as I said, it started tonight, opening ceremony, Friday night, uh, and you probably won't be hearing a lot from me about anything other than that for the next two weeks. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have a lot of Olympic uh talking points, I think, just because it's going to kind of be there for everybody. So I'm sure we'll have some sort of Olympic story to talk about. Um, all right, guys, thank, thank you for joining me for our, our basketball episode for this week. We are going to go ahead and do another episode, and actually I, I'm going to go ahead and record it right after this, but I'm not sure which one will drop first, whether it's the football or the basketball episode. I was going to do this as two, two uh, segments here, but we're, we're almost to an hour here. 
Um, so it'll probably be better to just kind of break them up into two. So, um, but as always, you know, make make sure you guys um, subscribe to the to the podcast. We we're we're out on iTunes. You, you can subscribe to us there. Rate us. Uh, obviously, we would love for you to give us five stars. Um, but the more you rate us, the, the more you engage with the with, with the podcast, the more visible we are for everybody. Um, you know, sh- share this with with everybody they, that you think might be interested at all in in Kansas athletics. So. Um, you, you can contact us on Twitter at Rock Chalk Talk. Uh, the email address we have is it's at rctsbn at gmail.com. That's Rock Chalk Talk SB Nation at gmail.com. Um, you can contact any of us on, on, on Twitter or on the site. Obviously, we will interact with everybody there. So, um, again, guys, thank, thank you for joining me, and thank you guys for listening, and we will catch you guys next time on the Rock Chalk Talk podcast. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.